You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 33. Days, hours, and minutes. Welcome to Denver Orbit. Denver Orbit, an audio magazine that features voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I am Mr. Josh Madison, but you can just call me Mr. Josh or Mr. Joshua. I don't care. So it's a new year, 2019, and there are things afoot here at Denver Orbit headquarters. We are planning things. This year, we're going to expand the scope of the show just a little bit. And we're actually going to feature more documentaries and and other more produced pieces in addition to the work we already feature from creatives here in town. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. There's some good stuff in the works. But let's talk about you for a second. Are you a writer or an essayist maybe? Or, I don't know, could be you're a poet or even a fiction writer. Perhaps you're a documentarian or a journalist. Or maybe you just got a really interesting story you'd like to explore or an idea you'd like to talk about. If any of those things sound like you you should reach out to this very show. We are always looking, it's just me, let's be honest. Okay, I, I am always looking for things to put on this award-winning program, and that could be you, internet friend. Just send me an email to denverorbit at gmail.com and let's have us a chat. And all right, now that that business is out of the way, let's talk a little bit about today's show. A little while ago, I started reaching out to people I saw on Susan Freud's excellent series, 100 Colorado Creatives. This is Westward Magazine's series of interviews showcasing the wide variety of creative people here in Denver and the work they do. I've been lucky enough to already have a few people from that list on the show, and today is no different. Our first story comes from writer and arts journalist Deanne Gertner. And just a quick content warning, the story does talk about domestic violence. My Life According to Elton John Blue Eyes My dad's eyes are blue like the color of faded jeans at the knees and always behind glasses. His favorite color is blue, though I'm not sure what shade or tone. It could be anything. Navy, royal, robin's egg, sky, sapphire, aquamarine, cyan, cornflower... Cerulean, Persian, Midnight, Oxford, Ultramarine, Powder, or Steel. For all I know, his favorite blue could be the same one as his eyes. I used to think the song was about my sister Meredith. She has the same blue eyes as Dad. My eyes are green but can look more blue-gray depending on what I wear. My youngest sister Kayla's eyes are now hazel. They used to be brown until high school when she didn't take out her daily contacts for a month straight. Don't ask me why. Originally, we all had brown eyes, says Hans Eiberg from the Department of Cellular and Molecular Medicine at the University of Copenhagen. That is, until a genetic mutation occurring between 6,000 and 10,000 years ago reduced the melanin in the iris. Most Caucasian babies have light-colored eyes at birth. 
Crocodile Rock. As a child, I believed crocodiles crawled out of the concrete walls of our basement once all the lights were out. I have no idea where I got this image, especially in Colorado. I always kept the lights on. The basement housed our home's laundry room, storage, and toy and weight rooms. While Dad worked out, we'd play Hot Lava Monster or jump on the 36-inch trampoline or choreograph dances to Elton John songs on cassette, the only music that ever blared from the boombox. As sisters do, we fought and argued. Should someone cry an inevitable hourly occurrence, our dad would holler from the weight room, Stop your crocodile tears! before going back to his cleans and jerks. Once he got chicken pox as an adult, at the same time my youngest sister got them. My sisters and I were all under seven years old then. My middle sister and I had chicken pox the month before our youngest sister was born, but somehow our dad had managed not to get infected then. The same would be true when we got lice 11 years later. Everyone but him got it. With chickenpox, he decided he could still lift weights, but during his bench set, he got buried under the bar. We heard a puff of wet sound, almost like a whale surfacing, and then we saw him, stuck. Daddy! Daddy! We raced around the bench, frantic and helpless and terrified. We could taste metal and chalk. We were so close. The plates trembled. His face turned from red to purple. Stay back! He said, his voice haggard and cracked. Through tears, we watched him struggle, pulling one arm down to the floor, pushing the other up. His whole body shook, arms, legs, chest, neck, as he wrestled to cartwheel the bar. Eventually, it clanged against the concrete floor. Then we watched him sit up, bend over, heave, and cough. We waited to see if his face might ever return to a normal color. He didn't say anything about our tears then. The bitch is back. I ruined Thanksgiving dinner 2003, our last holiday as a cohesive nuclear family unit. It was three weeks after the 21-gun salute to my one-month-older cousin Michael at Fort Logan. He died in a car crash at 20, ejected through the window because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. My dad had carried him, at age five, inside to our couch after Michael had slipped and fell, splitting his head open on our front steps, had cooked pancakes for countless sleepover brunches, had spun him by the arms and legs at family cookouts, had taught him how to drive a stick shift at 16, had helped him train from the Navy's boot camp at 18. My dad didn't attend Michael's wake, and he'd shown up late to the funeral, standing sheepishly in the back. He left right after the service ended. This was all in the midst of my parents' divorce, and they still lived together. My hair remained blotchy and orangish after a botched at-home highlight the previous week. I didn't feel like myself. Dad and I got into a fight at the table that migrated to the kitchen. I screamed, yelled, said he didn't care about us, didn't care about Michael. I dared him to hit me, begged him even, with my fuck-you eyes and ratcheted body language. Yes, I thought in my crazed state, hit me. My guts quivered with anticipation. 
I hated him and wanted him to know it and wanted him to prove how much he hated me, hated my sisters and my mom and poor dead Michael too. His eyes were wide, the irises surrounded by bloodshot white. He cranked his arm back and I braced myself, but his fists stayed poised in the air. I could visibly see him wrestling with the question, to hit or not to hit. No rang through my head, an internal siren. I turned, grabbed my purse, and ran out the door without saying goodbye to anyone. I just left. For years I wrongly thought he restrained himself of his own accord, not my mom's. She had, without my knowledge, gotten behind him during our fight and grabbed his arm when he went to strike. I never even saw her there. Step into Christmas. Even though I'm a freshman in college and I stopped believing at age nine, I wonder for a second if Santa Claus is real, so great and disproportionately inverse to our economic situation is the quantity of presents. And then I figure it out. Aunt Janice's handwriting, grandma's key. There is no Santa, only family. My junior year in college, all we can afford to give him are a bag of peanut M&Ms, a handmade collage, and a $20 gift card to the movies, which is more than we gave to mom that year. Gee, thanks, dad says as he tosses it all in the back seat of his car. I'm 25. My sisters and I have decided we're not going to dad's family's Christmas anymore. I deliver the gifts before my dinner shift. We're not only ruining Christmas, my aunt tells me, but also our dad's surprise 50th birthday party. I am not swayed. Sad songs. I have a compulsion for what an ex-boyfriend called suicide music, that kind of woeful, kick you in the crotch, used all the Kleenex, ugly crying, slit your wrist long ways kind of song. I'm not a masochist, though I often toe the line between pleasure and pain. Neither am I chronically depressed, though I have been periodically medicated. What I am is a sucker for catharsis, or maybe I'm fascinated by vicarious sorrow. I'm mostly German, after all. A word in Spanish. As a noun, deadbeat means an idle, feckless, or disreputable person. As an adjective, deadbeat means of a clock, escapement, or other mechanism without recoil. It is American slang, perhaps originally from the Civil War. Divorce is a type of secession that sometimes leads to familiar warfare, including, but not limited to, a court of law graduation parties, weddings, and or funerals. A deadbeat dad is one who does not fulfill his parental responsibilities, especially when evading court-ordered child support or custody arrangements. Deadbeat dad in Spanish translates to padre incumplidor, literally meaning an unreliable father. It's similar to being an unreliable narrator, but there's the initial sperm donation and later the inevitable abandonment. 
The biological link to the child from a sperm donor is typically disregarded by the law so that he will neither have child support obligations nor rights to the child. Someone saved my life tonight. A newspaper delivery man found my dad laid flat on the sidewalk from a stroke outside his home in the pre-dawn morning of New Year's Day 2017. I imagine the delivery man is a spindly sort, divorced with chin scruff and the scent of stale cigarettes on his fingertips. He eventually sloughed off the metal urn that had fallen on my dad. I like to think about his arms shaking from exertion and the shards of soreness in his muscles he never knew existed that announced themselves for days afterwards. Does he still drive by that house and feel his arms twitch? Sometimes when I see large planters, I imagine their dead weight pressing on me. Sorry seems to be the hardest word. In the month after his stroke, at least one of us between my sisters and I saw him every day. We could almost never time it correctly to see a doctor, but one day I finally decided to work from the hospital so I could be present for rounds. For that month, all Dad wore was a hospital gown and an XL diaper. Sometimes we would try to talk. Once he asked, Does Mom know how sorry I am? I wondered for a second if he meant his own mother who'd been dead for almost 20 years before I realized he meant my mom. He hadn't seen her since that first night we'd learned he was in the hospital. Sorry for what? He paused and stared at the TV, bolted high up in the corner of the room. For being a jerk. You told her, remember? She had been the only one he had apologized to that night. He'd been crying so much he could barely get the words out. A stroke can cause changes in emotions including depression and pseudobulbar effect, an outburst of uncontrollable crying or laughing. He kept staring at the TV. I wasn't sure if he was trying to remember or if the conversation was over. I tried to keep it going. Why were you a jerk in the first place? I don't know, he said. I couldn't help it. That was the closest thing to an honest answer I would get from him. Madman Across the Water Madman Across the Water is a story of a man presumably in a mental institution on the shores of a body of water. Rick Moore, American Songwriter Because my dad thought he was someday going to open a gym, even though he could not sit up in bed or stand without the help of two or more aides, because his cost of care was about to kick in at the nursing home and he would have to forfeit all but $85 of his $503 monthly pension, because he is illogical and has a profound capacity for denial, because he cannot be reasoned with, because he could revoke my sister's and my power of attorney without cause, and because we wanted to do what was in his best interest, we did not tell our dad about selling off his weight equipment and returning his new car to the dealer. Perhaps his blow-up was inevitable, 
we probably just kicked it down the road a few weeks. Still, we thought we could use basic arithmetic to convince him of the necessity of things. He was licensed to teach everything up to calculus, after all. But math failed, as did pleas for a reason. After telling my sisters he'd kill us all than himself, after shattering his world champion bench press trophy into dust, after leaving me a message telling me my judgment day would come and that his was that day, he convinced a nurse to wheel him out front of the nursing home. Using his one good leg, he scooted himself down to the sidewalk and attempted to throw himself from his wheelchair into traffic. A faux suicide attempt. My dad had worked at a state-run mental health hospital for a time as a PE teacher to kids under 18. He knew the script to get committed. As expected, once admitted, his story changed. The closest body of water to the mental health center of Aurora, where my dad was briefly placed, is Windsor Lake, which is 2.5 miles or 7 minutes by car, 16 minutes by bike, or 45 minutes by walking. All modes of transportation my dad cannot participate in now or most likely in the near or distant future. He could have taken RTD's accessoride for people with disabilities. Some restrictions apply. Your song. There's a billboard off I-25 North from Denver to Fort Collins of Kung Fu Panda and his cub that says, Take time to be a dad today. The ad campaign began in 2008 through two arms of the Department of Health and Human Services, the Administration for Children and Families, and the Office of Family Assistance. According to the New York Times, the campaign follows recent research that underscores what many consider to be a crisis of fathering in the United States. According to a survey by the National Fatherhood Initiative, a nonprofit organization, nine out of 10 parents believe that there is a father absence crisis in America. Writers say they write the same stories over and over again, and I suppose I'm no different. I've written stories about fathers who like other people's kids more than their own, Fathers who might be gay or at least questioning and or confused. Fathers who get remarried. Fathers on the brink of child abuse. Fathers who are physically present but mentally checked out. Fathers in hospitals. Absentee fathers. Fathers that resemble Thanksgiving turkeys and vice versa. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. To the extent that you are actively trying to distance yourself and maintain that distance, that makes you estranged, said Christina Sharp, assistant professor of communication studies at Utah State University. In our culture, there's a ton of guilt around not forgiving your family. Achieving distance is hard, but maintaining distance is harder. Estrange comes from the late 15th century Middle French for to alienate, from vulgar Latin meaning to treat as a stranger, from the Latin meaning foreign, from without. According to Real Simple, here's how to deal with estrangement. 
one, before becoming estranged. A, talk before it's too late. B, resort to email if necessary. C, take a sabbatical. Two, short-term estrangement less than one year. A, act as if nothing has happened. B, skip the long letter. Three, long-term estrangement, multiple years. A, keep reaching out. B, don't stalk on social media. C, leave the door open a crack. D, make fun of yourself. Four, permanent estrangement. A, acknowledge your feelings. B, talk about the situation. I once wrote a poem about the things I'd abandoned. Mixed into the list were bobby pins, a 26-inch waistline, going to bed at a decent hour, and my paternal family. Easier than I'd imagined, I wrote, before the final lines, the concept of myself as a good person. It's like that still, this abandonment, this distancing that's a smoldering Malatov cocktail of relief and grief. The easiest decision to make, and yet the hardest to live with, day in and day out. I could give up my career, my social life, my sanity, my independence, to even attempt to reconstruct his deteriorating mental and physical health in the catastrophic mess of his finances. It came down to this, his life or mine. For once, I chose myself. Colorado native Deanne Gertner holds an MFA in creative writing from the Vermont College of Fine Arts and a BA in English Literature with a minor in Fine Arts from Regis University. Her work has been published in Daily Serving, Quaint Magazine, Scintilla, and Treehouse, among others. Deanne will be a writer-in-residence at Vermont Studio Center, the nation's largest in-residency program, in March 2019. She is currently working on a manuscript of essays exploring estrangement. Her work can be found at deannegertner.com. This reading is adapted from a version previously published in Into the Void. So let's talk about social media. Are you on it? Probably. And this show is on it too. Just search for Denver Orbit on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, even Reddit. Now, how is a podcast on Instagram, you may ask? Well, you'll have to follow us to find out. And I promise you'll like it? Hate it? I don't know. You figure it out. And that takes us to the last story in the show. This is from writer Jason Arment. And this one actually also needs a content warning. This is from Jason's book about serving in Iraq, and as such, features frank descriptions of combat. Also, you'll hear the word FOB, which is an acronym for Forward Operating Base. So here's the story.
I was on the tail end of the bullshit. I helped break down one of the last fobs. The strategy was the same as the one employed at the beginning of the war in Afghanistan. Move into the cities and set up bases. Toward the end of the war, mega bases were in place. Camp Fallujah was one of these, a few kilometers northeast of the sprawl of Fallujah itself. It was a monstrosity, outfitted with a helicopter pad and squads of marines patrolling the perimeter in constant vigil. The base was a labyrinth of twisting gravel roads, leading deep into the oasis of friendly territory. The chow hall was unlike any other chow hall in our battle space. It was almost like being back stateside. Giant plasma screen TVs played the latest sporting events. Paper tablecloths, metal silverware, it was enough to make the most hardened veteran drop his guard. The contrast was stark between the personnel who lived on the base and the transient convoy goers who ravenously ate there. While personnel stationed at the base were clean cut and wore pressed uniforms, marines from outside were grizzled and dirty and carried weapons that were beat up and caked with sand. We looked like a bunch of homeless people eating in a fancy restaurant. The entrance of Camp Fallujah was in a great dip in the desert between the road and a far-off ridgeline. The kilometer-long depression in the ground was filled with an assortment of every kind of vehicle on God's green earth, each torn open and burnt to a crisp. They were countless and stretched to the eastern horizon. After watching them fly by for 20 minutes, we rolled past several checkpoints. Bases with scenes like that at their gates made it so much safer for us in the end. No one in their right mind would try to roll up to that base, not even a suicide bomber. They just couldn't make it. At the tail end of that bullshit was a mass exodus, including my base, Fab Riviera. Everyone who wasn't attached to a battle space getting broken down was relocated to a larger camp. This was called an egress or a withdrawal. It couldn't be done fast enough. We wouldn't leave anything for the dinks, except we weren't calling opposition forces dinks anymore. The names we used to dehumanize them had changed, though the concept remained the same. We made them different, so we could justify acting like they were no better than the cockroaches that we scraped off the soles of our boots. As we stripped the copper wire that ran all through the base, we cursed them. We were told that everything we didn't strip would be made into some kind of killing device, that terrorists would wear it into meetings inside Fallujah and smoke half of Battalion 1-5 or 3-5 or whoever was holding down that hornet's nest of pissed off Arabs. It wasn't used for that. It would be strapped to a woman who would bear hug an Iraqi police officer and detonate. Suicide bombers' heads pop straight off like dandelions when they detonate. As soon as heads are blasting off around you like party streamers, you have failed. Somewhere along the line you let yourself down and the Hajis knew it. Those clever little guys didn't pull any punches. We were told the time to not blow it was the present, so we stripped everything. But that's not the picture that got sent up to Battalion. They didn't get a picture of how our fine boys were aggressing. Battalion got pictures of me on the front berm of the base, 
parking my vehicle between posts one and two. We hadn't taken pictures that patrol. The sandstorm was so thick you could cut it with your bayonet. All we had done was drive around for four godforsaken hours in a brownout, not seeing, not doing a damn thing, and forgetting to take photos of the operation. So, we posed inside of the actual fob and got a picture of me standing in front of the Humvee. You can't tell from the pic that it was taken inside of the base. So Battalion was happy. And that made America happy. That made every jerk-off who was getting laid high and wasted stateside as happy as a pig and shit. The Marines who were there at the tail end knew better. Everyone knew better, except the people in command, who weren't there. They seemed not to have thought about how our leaving would be handled. We just vacated. We did so shorthanded and thus put people in positions that were sloppy, unprofessional, and dangerous. We left entire companies in logistical darkness about how they would not be receiving supplies or about how they would manage a command post with three quarters of their strength gone and no help on the way. In the mission briefing, our crooked sergeant assigned my team leader, Rose, and I to the south end of the double blockade, cutting off all traffic on both sides of the road in town in order to cover the engineers who were tearing down the berm and gathering up the razor wire. The way things broke down left our sergeant with no responsibilities and plenty of time to sleep at the north end of the roadblock. As we walked out of the base to the trucks, the smell of diesel, dirt, and the nearby latrines wafted rudely through our noses. Rose informed me that we were doing it severely undermanned. We were getting hung out to dry in the middle of town with no boots on the deck to haul our asses out of the fire and back to the half-torn-open fob if Allah willed his children to play rough with us. We hit the center of town like we owned the place. The roadblock was concertina wire, which would tangle people and ensnare cars. We had to dismount and stand in the street, just Rose and me. We had an MRAP at our end of the blockade. Larkin was in the turret behind the machine gun, and Doc Martinez was guarding the back door of the MRAP. That left no one in the driver's seat, the vehicle essentially dead in the water. As we cleared out an intersection of cars that had for some reason stopped and refused to move. I put my boots on the ground with my 9 mil already out. Rose took the right side of the street. He was going to kick villagers off their front porches and make them go inside for the remainder of the night. There were few people outside playing soccer or milling about, and we were glad for that. I took the left side of the southbound car standing still, stacked two abreast and more than 13 deep. I had to move these cars south across the intersection so we could set up the blockade. I went up to someone's car and motioned him forward. No one would move, so I waved my pistol and shouted in broken Arabic. A shop owner, who had walked outside to see the commotion, clued me in that a giant convoy was sitting across the intersection. The Hajis could tell we were trying to clear the streets, and I think they wanted us to get the giant convoy out of there as well. The sooner they could go back to gutting animals and readying them for the evening meal, the happier they would be. I walked over to a beat-up blue Toyota and told the driver to pull forward. He looked at me in panic. He knew I was going to make him ram a vehicle in front of him to clear a path. He understood this. 
They also knew that I wasn't going to just start smoking innocence. They didn't know 100%, but it could be assumed that I wasn't going to redecorate his dashboard with the beef cranberry of his brains just yet. So the car sat there, and the people standing in the dusty street stared at me. I felt heat rise up my back and into my head, my pulse distorting my vision. As one thing became certain, I was going to move that man. Jackie the Iraqi was going to be the link in the chain that forced the cars in front of him forward. This middle-aged Haji was going to be heroic, to summon forth fortitude, and I was going to help. I was going to storm over to my vehicle. I was going to tell Larkin to cover me. I would throw open my door and toss the pistol on the seat. I was then going to grab my M16A4 service rifle and slam a 30-round high-capacity magazine into it. I drove my heels into the deck on the way over. Larkin told me that it was apocalypse across the intersection, the unit call sign for the battalion personal safety attachment, the small army that guarded the battalion commander. The first round in my magazine slid into the chamber. Courage welled up in the Iraqi as he saw me walking back to him. I was about to make this man a hero, someone who was so brave he would no longer sit idle at the intersection of this town. He would advance and brave the waiting guns of the apocalypse, be an emissary for those who would no longer let America impose on their lives. He tried to plead with me through the open car window, his calloused hands raised in panic. I would like to think he was pleading for the angel of death to pass over, so that he could go on to take part in some greater glory, that Allah had come to him and told him that someday he would be used for some other purpose than standing up to those who thought they could tower over him. But I don't think that's what he was saying to me. I think he was saying that he wasn't ready to pull forward. I looked at him and I thought, no, this was the day he was going to step forward as a man. I wasn't going to give him a choice. As my weapon leveled at his head and hung in the breach of his half-open window, he knew he was going to be a leader this day. He knew this was the day that Allah had chosen for him to act. I looked at him and whispered, no, forward. He became the man ahead of his peers and he did pull forward. The cars ahead of him started moving and the cars behind him followed. In that way, the southbound traffic was cleared. I walked over to the truck and Rose told me that the people he had been talking to hauled ass inside as soon as I racked my rifle and put on my business face. We were happy. We were happy because higher ups would be happy. Battalion was happy with pictures. It was happy with cleared intersections. I fell asleep in the truck behind the roadblock, curled into a ball in the driver's seat, dreaming of a sweet nothing, not the nightmare I played out in my waking. That's how the West was won. It was a victory that hinged on us leaving quickly and efficiently. And that's how I helped win that day, by being a traffic cop who flew all the way around the world to tell a people that they were wrong to do things the way they were doing them. All the sacrifice, the tears, the blood, the lives and limbs that were left there, they were part of that victory also. A way of saying that America could go anywhere and do anything it wanted. It could walk into your country and force it to be democratic. And if you didn't have the courage to like it, we would bequeath you that courage from the 5.56 millimeter hole at the end of our rifles.
change rides again. Jason Arment served in Operation Iraqi Freedom as a machine gunner in the United States Marine Corps. He's earned an MFA in creative nonfiction from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. His work has appeared in the New York Times and way too many other publications to list here, but you can find a full list of those places and his other work at jasonarment.com. This story is an excerpt from his memoir of his time in Iraq called Musa Halim, and I'll have a link to where you can purchase that and everything else in the show notes. And that's it for today. As I said before, my name is Josh. I am the creator, producer, and editor of this little program. And I'm required to say this by podcast law. If you like what you're hearing, rate and review this show on whatever podcast app you use. I'll just wait here while you go and do that. And that's it. I'll see you again in a couple of weeks.